Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete Borgent. I'm here with Steve Moriarty. G'day, Steve. Hi, Pete. We've finished up our mini-series on the subject of bubbles. Now we're going to move on to a subject uh, closer to my heart, economics. Um, So what we're going to work towards over the next few episodes is how can economics help you as an investor and indeed does it help you as an investor? Um, So we'll start today with a brief history of economics and we'll tie back where we can to markets and what's happening in markets. So let's rewind right to the beginning before we... Uh, get on to what's happening today. So, Steve, history of economics. So, let's first talk about uh, where economics actually came from and what was the purpose of it and um, how economic theory has evolved over time. Yeah, so I've always been interested in economics from a, from a personal perspective, mainly because it also tied into politics. Um, and really, I mean, you can go right back, you know, as far as you want to go, but it really sort of all kicked off I think with Adam Smith is probably a fair place to say, you know, economics got serious. Adam Smith and the pin factory. That's probably where it started. And funnily enough, up until, oh, geez, it's it's as late as probably 1960, I think, economics was actually called political economy. And the, the arguments or the discussions were always about how the resources should be distributed. And so most people know Adam Smith's book, um, The Wealth of Nations, but he also had a book which was actually a lot more interesting than The Wealth of Nations, I can tell you, which was called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And it was all about ethics and how, you know, things should be produced and how they should be consumed and who get them and that sort of thing. That's where markets really sort of started in earnest with that sort of industrial revolution. So the uh, the idea, and it's a long time since I did this at school, but um, I, I guess the, the one of the underlying um, or the, the key things that people remember about Adam Smith, so as you talked about there, some of the, the technical stuff was about the, the removal of tariffs and you know, competition should be self-regulating. The thing that everyone remembers from school is the idea of the invisible hand of self-interest. So by acting in their own interest, people will uh, essentially pursue profit and and capital gets allocated accordingly. But does that does that imply then that people act rationally all the time? Because I guess if we if we're tying this back ultimately to markets, um, the predictability or otherwise of human behaviour is is obviously a big part of that. Yeah, yeah, it was the real stuff about the the theory in that in the numbers sense. There was an old quote that I was reading the other day from Charlie Munger, you know, who um, who said someone said, you know, something about economics, and he said, well, 
what do you think of economics? And he said, well, if it's not behavioural, then what the hell is it? And what he means is for a long time economics was built like the markets on this efficient market stuff about we're all rational utility maximisers. So Adam Smith was saying if I look after myself and you look after yourself and everybody does it, paradoxically, everybody is better off. Hence, you know, like you were saying about the invisible hand. You can't see it, but this invisible hand is guiding us to the most efficient outcomes. And that way, everybody's better off. You know, you've got to remember, we're talking about 1870, I think. And at that stage, economics was mainly just microeconomics. And, you know, like you and I buying stuff, there was none of this macro stuff about trade and all that. That came later on with a guy called Ricardo, you know, and there you got into the comparative advantage of nations and this stuff which affects Australia of, you know, well, we should just keep digging up iron ore because that's what our comparative advantage is. That's the best way to build a country. And, again, extending Smith's idea was, well, if everybody looks after their own interests, everybody will be actually better off. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, there's clearly a... The, I mean, you see this in economies today. There is there's an element of truth in that, and that that things tend to become overpriced, and then people move over to to other goods and services, and things have a way of leveling themselves out. I guess one of the shortcomings potentially of this idea of people being rational actors is that there's a sense there of people acting in a financially rational sense. But I'm just trying to permit an example. I think back to Melbourne Cup Day. Um, every November, uh, you know, you, you look at how people are behaving on the day. There'll be lots of uh, heavy drinking, lots of gambling, and then lots of sore heads the next day. And I think everybody knows deep down that it, that is not rational behaviour, certainly not financially, uh, <laughs> because the bookies tend to make a handsome profit, but also not always acting in our own best interest either by taking time off from work and uh, spending it in a pub or down at the tab or what have you. So clearly people don't always act in a financially rational sense, but there's lots of other reasons why people might be motivated too. Uh, We're not all motivated by financially rational decisions all of the time. That's the stuff that started to creep in much later. Like the same thing happened in the stock market. When Markowitz came up with the efficient market theory, the, the crucial thing is the assumptions in economics and the assumptions in the efficient market stuff from Markowitz are exactly the same. And it was stuff like everybody's got perfect information. Well, we know that's not true. You know, we know that some people have got better bargaining power. So, you know, the the, the generally wealthy have a better bargaining position over the poor. Depending on the, the economics, the business owner was in a better bargaining position than the the worker, hence the reason why they got unions, right, which started bargaining on people's behalves. When you look at the threat of economics, it's gone from Adam Smith's being the bastion of free markets, which he, he actually wasn't, but he was held up as, you know, the guy who championed free markets. And once that ran into a bit of trouble, it flipped over into the Keynesian sort of stuff. But Adam Smith was always famous for no sort of government intervention, i.e., you know, libertarianism and free markets. And then, excuse me, Keynes came along and started talking about, 
you know, government pump priming demand and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, which is obviously an absolutely critical thing today because every time there's a downturn, uh, they turn on the the money printing taps. And I guess that's a highly contentious point, actually. And it's worth worth us spending a bit of time considering that as it relates to investing. Uh, before we come on to uh, Keynes and the idea of pump priming the economy and money printing today, uh, when I went on to university, um, I remember in our little seminar groups studying the history of things like the Industrial Revolution and what have you. And I would say probably in our little groups of, say, 15, at least seven of the people there were self-described Marxists, um, which is obviously a popular thing for students to describe themselves as, albeit uh, there is middle-class uh, bourgeoisie <laughs> studying university. But so the, uh, the, the theory went that Karl Marx was all about the means of production being the key component of an economy, the reason I'm interested to get your views on this, one of the the fundamental principles that we have as investors is that over the long run, uh, things uh, companies become more profitable, prices tend to rise, productivity increases, and therefore taking a long-term view, it does make sense to be optimistic. But Karl Marx obviously had a different view on um, how that would play out because as businesses became more powerful, he, he obviously had a very determinist view of what would happen, potential instabilities of capitalism. But it seems he what he underestimated was just how flexible a capitalist economy can be. And what we've actually seen is the rise of, well, yes, uh, a bourgeoisie, uh, people who can study at university and, and become middle managers in professional services and what have you. But we didn't see the, um, the Marxist revolution, certainly not in the, most of the Western world. Um, so how does that tie back to the idea of long run being an optimist because economies are going to improve under capitalism? A lot of people associate Karl Marx with communism and, and socialism, and that's not, not incorrect. However, Marx's, actually, Marx's forte was the critique of capitalism. And what you've got to remember was back in the day, capitalism was pretty harsh, you know, there was, there was no welfare state, so to speak of. So what Keynes was doing was actually critiquing the illogic of, not Ill, the illogic, but sort of saying, listen, if you leave capitalism to its, its own inherent contradictions and its own sort of characteristics, it will turn out really badly. So he then went on to talk about, you know, socialism and communism as an alternative. But generally... And this is what sort of is happening a lot in markets now and in the GFC. And it gives me back to, brings me back to that point we, we're going to touch on, but just saying that most people don't like government intervention. But I can honestly tell you as an investor, go and have a look every time the government blows the arse out of the government budget. Mate, the stock market goes through the roof. And the reason why is because the government throws an absolute bucket of money at the economy. So free markets don't do that. And that was where Keynes stepped in to say that the the equilibrium that free market economics talked about was a real problem because the economy, as they discovered in the Great Depression, could be in equilibrium or in balance but you could have 25% unemployment. The one thing that Marx correctly identified is that 
left to their own devices, businesses could become ever more powerful. And so that's 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 a whole other discussion in its own right about big tech today. And um, is too much power concentrated in too few hands? And arguably, that's very true. I think probably what he underestimated was the flexibility of capitalism. And we have addressed the uh, the 1%, if you like, to some degree with progressive tax systems and inheritance taxes. But I mean, it's, it's no doubt uh, true, as Piketty pointed out, that um, the 1% of the wealthiest in the, in the world have found ways to not pay their fair share of tax and to use complex trust uh, structures to pass on their wealth. So that that is an ongoing issue. But obviously, capitalism was more flexible probably than, than Marx anticipated. As you mentioned, there's a leading on to Keynes. I, I guess this is probably an absolutely key subject for uh, investors today. Um, so I think, as you mentioned, the Great Depression probably changed a lot of views on how governments should intervene in a struggling economy because you could get into this liquidity trap where you get into deflation, debt deflation, unemployment rising, and it just becoming a vicious downward spiral. And um, Keynes's view was that in that instance, the government needs to step in and create employment, even if it involved building bridges to nowhere, but finding a way to get the economy back on its feet So I guess this is probably one of the hottest topics in investing right now is that every time we have a downturn, not only do we see big government deficits, but also very stimulatory uh, monetary policy and also quantitative easing, which uh, even 15 years ago wasn't really a subject that people knew much about. Now it's absolutely de rigueur. So that's probably one of the most important things to understand potentially today as an investor, the the role of central banks and governments in stimulating struggling economies. If you have a look at the big event, 29, you know, the Great Depression, basically 2007, because they're so widespread, they can't actually be solved by markets because as, as, you know, Keynes showed or as everybody figured out, you can have a big mass of unemployment and markets won't move. So the idea was when Keynes floated it about, you know, pump priming, that was really, really controversial back in the day, you know, because up until then, the Great Depression was just rolling on and there was no idea about, right, let's start, you know, building a national infrastructure program. There was none of that stuff. And in fact, a lot of people have said, you know, the first Keynesian was actually Adolf Hitler because Hitler started building a military machine And, of course, what happened? Everybody got jobs. You know, so everybody thought it was fantastic, hence the reason why sort of uh, Keynesianism came in. The interesting part, Pete, for me is whether you're looking in sort of economic growth after the war up until about 1975 was really, really high. And now, naturally enough, it was high because they were rebuilding a lot of Europe um, with the Marshall Plan and stuff. But they also had heaps of government spending. And in those days, there was a lot of government. Government used to be about 50 to 60% of GDP. Um, In some places in Europe, like Italy and Spain and stuff, it still is. And that was because it was defending against communists after the war. So the governments had to make sure that capitalism won by being a better system. But the more interesting point is if you have a look through markets, they still cycle. You look at 1980s 
when we've had a lot of, you know, back to the sort of free market stuff, we've still got booms and busts in the market. When you look at the previous periods, again, you've still got booms and busts. And so it's really difficult other than my sort of generic statement, which was government deficits are good for the economy. Now, you can argue about that long term, you know, whether it drives inflation and stuff, but the reality is whoever it is spends money is good for markets. And if you spend a lot of money, there's only one lot who can do that, and that's the government, unless you get, of course, a debt boom. The, the interesting thing is, and this is what you and I always talk about, it's not about growth. It's always about the mispricing. You know, it's always about the price and the value. We know there's going to be robots and AI and, you know, different forms of economics in the future. But the question is, can you make money out of it because it's not priced correctly? That's the really important point. Yeah, because I think the, the general view at the moment seems to be, if you go back to the equation in economics, MV equals PQ. Yeah. So in other words, the, the, the money supply times the velocity yeah. um, is equal to, to price and times quantity. And uh, I think there's there's a general view that, well, if you increase that the supply of money, which has happened in Australia, it's happened, um, we've seen broad money growth in Australia is like, what, 13% over the last year. The money supply in the US has expanded very rapidly. So the general view is, well, that should increase GDP. I guess, therefore, over the long term, the trend for stock should be up um, and you should get inflation and earnings growth. But as you pointed out, um, it, it hasn't historically stopped stock markets from being volatile. In fact, even in 2020, we saw a 37% correction despite all of that. So it should probably tell you that looking for cheap markets is still the smart thing to do, regardless of the long-term trend being up. I think, um, you know, the, the old view you always used to be, well, you know, you, you get GDP and inflation growing and eventually, um, well, you should see some kind of normalisation of interest rates and potentially inflation used to be thought of as good for gold stocks. And there was a general rotation, sector rotation on the, the idea of, you know, if stocks are forward looking to tomorrow's winners, then it's a question of looking for um, defensive versus growth stocks. So, but it, it said it doesn't seem to be a popular view at the moment. What general view seems to be, well, the Fed's printing, so everybody pile in. But I guess as we've seen in, I suppose the only time we've seen more expensive US stock markets was 99, 2000, and it didn't end particularly well. So, uh, yeah, it, brought, it, it gets back to that earlier point you were making about uh, are people rational? And when you put them in a, a room together, that becomes a market, you know. So you'd sort of say, well, our market's rational. And it brings up again the, the history or the, the evolution of economics. You know, at the moment, everybody's talking about modern monetary theory, which we'll do a, a, a yak on. But before that, the biggie was um, behavioural economics, where, you know, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize, even though he's not an economist, right, because of this idea about, you know, people are behavioural rather than rational. You know, we talked about system one and system two. And what it shows is at the moment a lot of economists now are struggling because the standard sort of neoclassical theory, which we've been, you know, dining out on for 150 years, is losing its reputation, of, if I can put it that way, because, you know, in the I remember in 07, the big question was the Queen of England said, 
you know, when the markets crashed, the Queen of England said, why didn't you guys know about this? And there was lots of umming and ahhing. The reality was the neoclassical model they were using was wrong. And that was, you know, that was Alan Greenspan with, um, oh, you can't predict asset bubbles, you know, um, the efficient market stuff with saying, well, if a house is worth $85 million, well, so be it. It's worth $85 million. If a stock is worth, you know, people are paying 20 bucks for a $2 stock, well, it must be worth 20 bucks because how could the markets be irrational? This is a, a really interesting question. So I, I remember when QE first became a thing, when we started seeing in earnest um, the response to the global financial crisis, there was a general view at that time that if you print money like crazy, which are, with these sort of bond buying programs and bailout packages, we would see inflation, if not hyperinflation. In fact, um, when I uh, applied to study at Oxford University many, many years ago, I was interviewed by Niall Ferguson, and he was one of the main proponents of writing uh, these coordinated letters to policymakers saying you're storing up an enormous burst of inflation or potentially other issues by doing these unconventional policies. Because we didn't get inflation, we saw inflation in housing prices and, and stocks in some cases, but we didn't get consumer price inflation. Uh, so all of that seems to have gone out the window now. Now it's almost um, accepted that in every downturn, there'll be money printing, um, very different response to what we've seen in previous cycles. Now, the Hayek uh, famously critiqued Keynes and coming from the Austrian school of economics angle, his view was potentially by taking these corrective measures to pump prime the economy, you could be uh, storing up financial instability for the future. Uh, so in other words, um, by stimulating the economy in a downturn, you could this could lead to disequilibrium and overinvestment in certain sectors. Now, I suppose, um, depending on where you sit on these things, I mean, I, I guess there's somebody who's uh, asset rich, I tend to not mind the idea of asset prices being pumped up, but um, you would have to say that uh, there is there are some questions there about what are we really storing up for the future here? Well, debasing money and, and printing money it, it's so willfully now um, at the site of the first sign of a downturn. So, do you have any thoughts on that? I think we're in a, a really interesting period um, for a couple of reasons. We've had the neoclassical model for a fair while now and to be quite honest there's a lot of there's a lot of lumps and bumps on it and it probably needs to be updated then you move to the new theory which is at the moment is basically we had some sunshine on behavioral economics for a while there uh, and now we've we've suddenly moved into modern monetary theory and it's become popular because of a couple of things one is i would argue many won't again, as you said, depending where you sit, but modern monetary theory has pretty well predicted what's been going on for a while and said you can spend a, you know, you can spend a bucket load of dosh and you won't get inflation and you won't get inflation because you've got a lot of people out of work. So there's that aspect of it. I think we're heading down that path. I think it's probably another 10 years or 15 years before it becomes fully operational and accepted as the new paradigm um, because Thomas Kahn, I think it was, wrote, you know, the, the um, scientific revolution stuff and basically saying, look, the old theory dies when all the old economists die out and, you know, everybody's a modern monetary theorist. 
And if you think about it, Pete, in this way, modern monetary theory says it's about utilising resources, right, people and, you know, rocks and crops and all that sort of stuff. And when you think about it, it goes, if you say, well, everybody can have a job and that the economic system, this dispense with the bullshit that we're in equilibrium, we just give people work and we we allocate government money to them or they do, you know, the old stuff about Keynes, go and paint rocks. What you end up with is you, you get back to Adam Smith's question, which is, well, it becomes about what do we spend the money on? Because as modern monetary theory shows you, the Hayekians and the, the sort of Austrian economists would agree that the government can print as or pay as much money as it wants. They will argue about inflation, and I don't think modern monetary theory is much different. But what I'm getting at is it underlying all that, you get back to the point of saying, oh, well, if the government can spend money all the time, everybody should have a house and everybody should have a job. And if they're homeless, well, we should build them a house. Rather, what we do now is say, oh, well, no, we can't do that because the government's got a budget deficit and, you know, we've got to bring it back into balance. What modern monetary theory shows up is basically saying that's bullshit. You can keep spending because you're printing your own currency. You know, like you can't run out of something that you you make. And so that's where I think in in future it really starts to get interesting for stock markets because you have to then really look at companies in a different way than this, you know, overwhelming competitive stuff. It just leads to interesting sort of positions in the future. Yeah, completely. Because I, I guess um, and we've, we've barely even touched on so many different things here. But I guess if you understand the basic law of economic supply and demand, um, if more houses are going to be built, well, that's good for home building stocks and so on. So um, I, I think there's there's plenty more for us to talk about in the remainder of this series, not least, as you mentioned there, the role of the government on industry and the yeah. money supply and particularly uh, fiscal and monetary policy. Because at the moment already we're seeing the coalition government, Scott Morrison, is saying, well, we're not running a blank check budget here, guys. We're going to have to wind back the JobKeeper. But, yeah, there's different views out there now on how governments should actually be approaching this and central banks. And I, I guess one of the things we'll look to cover off in the forthcoming episodes is you know, clearly we can see that the stock market or stocks and the economy are kind of joined at the hip. But by the same token, it's quite clear that stocks are not the economy because we've seen this in 2020. Prices can drop 40% and then rebound by almost the same amount. Uh, so, yes, stocks are forward-looking and you can make a case for uh, there was a great deal of uncertainty, which is somewhat cleared as vaccines have become available. But uh, it's pretty obvious that stocks are not the same thing as the economy. And yeah. therefore, there's a question to be answered there, Steve, I think, for, well, how much do you need to really understand in terms of economics? Do you need to st- understand yeah. anything to be a good investor? Or are there other ways to approach it? So let's wrap it up there for today on the half hour. So thanks for joining today. And in, in the next episode, we'll come on to look at a little bit more on this uh, question of behavioural versus rational economics and uh, look forward to joining you then. Cheers, Steve. See you, Pete. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com 
forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.